here rap beer is to preserve history of the Wilmington film industry um, to entertain our audience and and ultimately to educate um, young people that that may want to join the circus I totally agree I think I think these stories need to be told I think they need to be preserved I mean heck we have two universities or a college community college and a, and a university that are both teaching film programs and I just think that there's a benefit for those programs to have these stories not only told but captured for the future so it makes a lot of sense because our Wilmington story actually begins in many ways in Shelby, North Carolina. Yes. And Earl Owensby. And our guests today, Jeff Schlaughter and Rusty Edmondson, are part of the tribe of filmmakers that migrated from Shelby to Wilmington um, at the very beginning. Uh, Jeff Schlaughter is a construction coordinator who actually built the stages here, Cinespace Wilmington. Rusty Edmondson is a Shelby native who became a movie electrician who also came to Wilmington and is part of the story here. And, um, you know, uh, this interview was only the second interview that I recorded for Rap Beer. Um, it's still a proof of concept at this point. Right. I borrowed a conference room to record. And um, so, uh, you know, the sound quality I'm learning and um, and and we're certainly improving. But I think the biggest thing that I learned here was that um, – that these stories need to be told. Yes. And um, so in, in that regard, um, I'm not going to let perfection be the enemy of good. Um, these stories are wonderful. Um, Jeff has lots of insight on how the studio became to be. So welcome to uh, episode two of Rap Beer, The Tribe. All right, let's get into it. I remember the intersection of military cutoff and Eastwood was Tulane Road with a stop sign. See, I don't remember that. I remember College Road yeah, was Tulane. College Road was Tulane. Market Street was Tulane. But the, the big one is a stop sign on the way to Riceville Beach. <laughs> <laughs> Three Shelby boys riding in Jim Tamaro's pickup truck. Myself, Tamaro, a guy named Mark Overton, run out of gas on College Road. It was still Tulane. Right before Mucky Junction, right. guess who stops to give us a ride to the gas station? Was it me? Mr. Jeff, Jeff Slott. Slott. Really? <laughs> <laughs> I remember that. <laughs> that was so funny. It I must just... have just left Dino's bar. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah, but, you know, Four knuckleheads that start out in show. <laughs> I always refer to you guys as the tribe. This nomadic crew that showed up and they're very much a part of Wilmington and your own identities and sense of humor. Had Earl Lones we not done what he had done, we wouldn't be doing what we're doing here 40 years later. Give the guy some credit for sure. Oh, he deserves a lot of credit. Yeah. So it's January 24, 1982, Super Bowl 16, with the San Francisco 49ers beating the Cincinnati Bengals 26-21. The game is followed by an episode of 60 Minutes, which would become the highest rated episode of 60 Minutes to date. And it featured Earl Owensby, interviewed by Morley Safer. Really? How about, that? How about yeah. that? January 24, 1982. Jeff Slaughter, how did you end up in... You're from Buffalo. 
No? No. I'm from New Jersey. You're from New Jersey? Yeah, like everybody else. <laughs> <laughs> and how'd you end up in Shelby? Uh, I followed my soon-to-be wife. Oh, all right. I succumbed to social pressure and got married, and <laughs> she she, uh, she had a sister that lived in uh, between Boiling Springs and Cliffside. Her, her, uh, her sister's husband's father ran the golf station across from Gardner-Webb College. So I followed her and moved down there and uh, started doing construction. Building houses. Building houses. You ended up working with Earl Owensby. Well, it was kind of inadvertent. We got a call. I don't even remember the date. But I had a partner, Pete Link. Mm -hmm. Remember Pete Link? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. And we we got a call, if I remember correctly, to go build a room. And it was, boys, give me a room... I don't even remember who told us. I think it was Mike Allen. 20 by 16 or something. Uh, a window, hardly any direction. And we did it. Right. And left. And um, a few weeks later, we got another call. This time they wanted two rooms. And, and, and eventually, we ended up working at Earl's almost continually. Wow. He made like 35 movies or so in a dry county. <laughs> Never lost a penny as well. That's what Never lost a penny. Was. Never like always. <laughs> you know, <laughs> maybe. Man, I think, he, like I said, he brought the film industry to the southeast, basically before Disney and Universal in Florida. Right. I think, you know, that kind of opened everybody's eyes. So, Rusty Edmondson, native of Shelby, North Carolina, How'd you get in show business? Kind of by accident. <laughs> you know, I was, uh, I moved back to Shelby at 25 years old. I was living up on Lake Norman. And uh, my buddy Greg Hull, that did special effects from Shelby. Oh, yeah. His mom worked at the local employment security commission. So I thought I'd just stop in there and see. Asked about Greg. She said, he's working for Earl doing special effects. You should go by there. I did. And you mentioned Mike Allen earlier, his brother. Gerald Allen was a head football coach at Shelby High School when I went to Shelby. I've known him since I was a kid. And I'd done some uh, cable TV work at Mike's house years and years earlier, right? So we got to talking and uh, never been on a movie set before in my life. Had no idea what I was doing anyway. So Mike said, well, it's about lunchtime. We're going to lunch. Why don't you come back after lunch? So 2 o'clock in the afternoon, damn near 40 years ago, I stepped on a movie set for the first time, thanks to Mike Allen, <laughs> honesty, and, and, and Earl Owensby. And Shelby. Did you land as an electrician? Or what we were grip Christians. We kind of did it all back you in did the it day. All. You know, yeah. you light, you flag, you bag, you do the whole thing. Dolly, you know, I tried to stay away from dollies and track. But right. yeah, we basically, it was such a small operation. Everybody kind of pitched in every department. Right. If I remember correctly, and I really wasn't involved with a lot of the filming, but if I remember correctly, everybody met in this feeding area. Yeah. I remember they had all these cement tables and Everybody would go in there and there was no call sheet. They would talk about what they were going to do during the day. <laughs> oh, wow. And that was it. And off they went. Mm-hmm. Well, that's the thing with Earl. He would, uh, you know, if there's a reshoot or a need to pick up or something, he'd take you off a ladder and send you to wardrobe. My very first job, I got killed yeah. by a baboon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, the masked man and the, the, the unmasking the idol it was called. And yeah, I was a bad ninja. You know, you can tell it's me by my schnoz and my eyes. I had a ninja mask. I'm walking through the woods and the monkey throws a damn uh, ninja star. It hits me in the head and I take a fall. And I get back on the ladder and go to work. <laughs> I have I have a, uh, one of Earl's brochures. I mean, it's, it's really hokey. 
It's really funny. So this generator truck was just, remember that generator truck? That whole piece of shit. There was starting. Well, we got the babysitter. Cause she come in like hung over or doing night stuff. You didn't even have a 500 or 750 up generator on this three ton truck basically. And, you, and the vibration that generator would put you to sleep. We got the babysitter. Cause everybody said, you know, hung over. Go hang out the babysitter. He showed yeah. his fleet. There's pictures of his fleet. And, and there's, there's his airplane. I got that. The I got truck. that. There's a poster. There's like an aerial view of this property. And then, like I said, that's the crane truck. That Talmud still has that crane truck. Does he really? Yeah, he was running on some of the commercials. The front entrance of the doors of his of his uh, studio that says the most efficient motion picture studio in the world. <laughs> he got a bunch of big-eyed 10Ks from Egon Stefan, sent a video, sent a video tech it was in Atlanta, yeah. that were on the launch pad back during the Apollo missions, you know, because you know, the liftoffs were right. early in the morning, it's still yeah, black, yeah. dark. And they were just face up all around the launch pad, shooting straight up, yeah. and that was their lighting. And Earl bought like a dozen of these big eye 10Ks from Egon back in the day. It had asbestos coated cables and stuff. I mean, but that's it, I tell everybody, you know, we made chicken salad out of chicken shit. Yeah, he was yeah. a like he was <laughs> yeah, a, he was he was a real huckster. And we started yeah. out oh, selling yeah. Bibles. And then his hardware business was for the yeah. for the cotton mills. And of course, yeah. in the 70s the cotton mills began to go overseas. And he, that's when he expanded into movie making. Yeah. Earl Owensby earned the nicknames Country Boy DeMille, Dixie DeMille, and E.O. DeMille. As I understand it, he wrote a movie script. And he carried that movie script out to Hollywood. And apparently, he never got anywhere with it right i don't want to say people laughed at him but that's what i heard that they were he didn't get a very good re, you know response to it and he came back and said i don't need you guys i'm just going to go ahead and make this movie myself i heard he saw walking tall yeah, yeah. which was shot in tennessee yeah yeah 1.3 million dollars and it made 40 million dollars and earl said that's the kind of movie i want to make and frank challenge was born that was it. And the yellow Pantera, Pantera, Ford Pantera, he drove yep. those for years. Yeah, that was the picture car, you know, that's a good guy. Right. Yeah, that was your walk and talk kind of guy, wasn't he? The first job that I did there was Death Driver, which was yeah. 1978, I think, is when we, when we did it. We did Date with an Angel here mm -hmm. in Wilmington. Craig Stearns was a production designer. He invited me out to Hollywood to work on the remake of The Blob. So I drove my 1970 Ford F-100 out to Hollywood, you know, did my Hollywood movie. And while I was there, Craig recommended me for a job that was going to shoot in South Carolina. So I had my first interview on the Fox studio lot, walked in there. That's a whole nother story, but I got hired to work on The Abyss in California. Big deal. That's a big, big deal. Freaking deal. Yeah. Not only that, I was able to hire my crew. They said, what do you want? I said, I want my crew, this, that, and the other. Done. Signed on the dotted line. So I packed up my truck, drove across country, got home, shuffled my suitcase, drove out to Gaffney, go down the long winding road to the nuclear power plant, sitting at the guard gate as Earl Lowensby with his little wiener dog. And I want to think he was driving a station wagon, like a big old lame yacht station wagon. So I come up in my beat up, I don't know if you all remember that green pickup truck, you know, half the driver's side was all kind of crushed in and 
<laughs> and I drove up, and um, I'm literally the first person there. And I said, well, I'm here to work on the abyss. He goes, well, they're not here yet, son. I said, no, I'm here. <laughs> I'm here. <laughs> I think the last thing he was expecting, you know, was a kid from North Carolina to pull in. And have one name, Charlie Skuras, the production manager. And Earl says, yeah, he's back in the back. Go on and see him. And I went to work. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so Dina DeLaurentis and Frank Capper come to North Carolina. They went to Shelby. That's where they started. Dino and Frank and Vic Simpson showed up in Shelby. Yeah. To do Firestarter. Vic and I got together. We talked about it. I was going to be Vic's assistant. I think they stayed there. And I think Martha was there too. Right. They lasted two days and then they were gone. And then a few days later, I got a call from Vic said, come on to Wilmington. I drove to Wilmington on the 4th of July of 1983. Right. And when I crossed the bridge coming into town, it took me a long time to find a Hilton. I didn't realize it was right on the water, but I had one name in my pocket to hire, which was Danny Kaiser. I'll be darned. Yep, one name. Oh, wow. One of the gods. When did you move down here, Rusty? Early 84. Uh, had some friends that had been back and forth, a couple different jobs. So I just, young and dumb, made the move, you know, in a blue Volkswagen with pretty much everything I had. <laughs> Got a little one-bedroom. <laughs> and uh, started from scratch, basically, over here. If I can back up a little bit. Yeah. Um, I don't remember exactly the dates, but there were two films that came down to work out of Earl's studio. One was called Reuben Reuben. Right. Uh, with a production designer, Peter Larkin. And another one was called uh, A Breed Apart, which they did up at Lake Lure. They brought all of these people in from Los Angeles and New York. And as it turns out, the painter was from New York. At that point, we had done a couple of things with Earl. And I, and I asked him, tell me how this business works. We don't know. <laughs> because it's, not, it's, it's different than the way you're doing it. And he explained it to me, explained how you charge uh, union-wise and, and uh, you kind of set the, you know, kind of set a path for me that I can understand how it worked for when we started Firestorm, which was shortly after that. Yeah, and it all landed at 1223 North 23rd Street and uh, where that studio got built. And you were there kind of day one on that. There were very few people there, and they asked me to drive to the airport to pick up, I don't remember who it was. Seems like it was somebody in locations, or I don't even remember. Right. But on the way to the airport, I passed this building that had a four lease sign, Ooh. right? And I drove in, and it was, you know, the building was empty. There, were, there was a big shed roof. There was plenty of room in the back. And when I got back from the airport, I mentioned it to the location manager, which is a, wo- a woman from Seattle, I want to think her, say her name was Pat Waters. I mentioned to her, there's a bill, a facility that may work for us. And they wow. made a deal with the realtor. The, the, the realtor happened to be the brother of the guy that owned A to Z Rental. Right. Davis. Peter Davis was the man's name that owned A to Z Rental. But it was his brother that was the realtor. Gotcha. So here we are 40 years later... And that property has just been sold to Cinespace. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Did we ever hear how much? 
<laughs> That'd be great to hear. Yeah, it? Really. I would love to know. I think because I think Screen Gems paid thirty-one million for it. Wow. Wow. Correct me. Maybe wrong. Fact check. Was that not the old New Hanover County landfill? That property and it was kind of wasn't really could be developed for no. like. And I heard Jim Hunt, the governor at the time, kind of sort of gave Dino a break. Well, what it was was Gregory Poole had been in there, and then there was a company in there that built steel containers. I heard for for nuclear waste. When Dino decided to buy the property, everybody talked about him getting all these incentives and these these breaks. Really, the break that he got was he got a, a water line moved and the state paid to have the power lines moved because the power lines went diagonally across the property, meaning you couldn't build anything underneath right. them and you had to have it right away. And they went further down the property straight. What was your first job in Wilmington? Bedroom window. What was that, 85, 86, something like that? And I'd say it was a busy town. You had Trinity 85 or 86. Yeah. I was trying to think. Uh, oh, that's Mr. Gil Taylor shot that. You know, first of all, I had a, they go to Baltimore to do some establishing stuff, and nobody had green cards, so they raided them all on a weekend in the hotel and shipped them back to Italy, right? <laughs> and so then, <laughs> Mr. Uh, Gil Taylor came on, uh, shot the very first Star Wars. His DP took over and brought his camera crew from England. Wow. Gaffer. Yeah, it was pretty funny. We'll be shooting nights on stage for some reason, you know, with turnarounds and stuff like that for actors. And uh, I remember there's a couch on, I think it was stage three, we had interiors, and he's sitting there, you know, we're lighting around, and he's sitting on a couch, and, you know, about, about to nod. He's probably in his 70s or late, you know, maybe even early 80s. He just passed away a couple of years ago at like damn near 100. Anyways, but uh, so he's sitting there, you know, and he's nodding a bit, and the camera says, so ask you for a stop. He'd go, two, eight. <laughs> Four. <laughs> just nod right back off. It's great. What do you do, meter? He just look. Look at the light. Look at his hand. But anyway, that was just old school kind of stuff. The way they did it. You know, a lot of those old cameramen yeah. never carried meters. You know, in the early days, it's Dino had every intention of bringing people in from outside the country because he he, he had it. We had an immigration lawyer on his staff. Yes. Mm -hmm. They would get people green cards. And they'd fly, and they'd fly to Toronto. And well, I don't know come, how they did it. Come All back across the border, stamp. Yeah. The woman Jessica, Jessica Savage was her name. She would, uh, she arranged people to get green cards. <laughs> it was like a melting pot back in the day, though. We yes. worked so many different crews from all over the world that Dino had put together, you know, mm -hmm. people that he had had with him and right. all these other you know, different jobs. It'd be, when I came, I told you, I had one name in my pocket, Danny Kaiser, and I had to find all the carpenters and painters. And of course, I, what I, what we ended up doing was going through the unemployment office. Right. And they had a cattle call and we hired local people on Firestarter. And a lot of them were, you know, until recently were still around, mm -hmm. a number of them. Mm -hmm. um, but when they started to do Cat's Eye and You're the Dragon, there was not nearly enough labor. So the unemployment office did a statewide cattle wow. call to come to Wilmington. And it was That's impressive. It was yeah. It was myself, Jim Brinson, and uh, Vic Simpson. We're each setting up in the office and the people were kind of uh, lined up out front because at that time the front gate was over on the on the uh, moving and storage side wasn't much of a front gate either right um, i remember that game. but we interviewed people you know all day long on a saturday 
And the, the one that stands out in my mind was Jeff Grinsman. He was, he was building decks in Charlotte. If there ever was anybody that was meant to be in the movie business, it was Jeff Grinsman. Once we finished Firestarter and Dino decided that he was going to build a facility, I was ready to go home after Firestarter. They had put a trailer in the, in the, uh, where the front parking lot is now, in front of the building. And Martha was the accountant. I was collecting my per diem from Martha at the beginning of the movie, and at the end of the movie, she was out in the trailer. And I got a call to go out there and meet with her. And she said, we've decided that we're gonna build a studio here, and we want you to move here. And they said that they would pay for me to move here. I had to think about it and certainly talk to my wife. But after everybody was gone, it was Jeff Ginn yes. and Giorgio Postiglione yes. and myself that were back in one of the few offices that they had trying to uh, design a studio based upon the the few acres that was there because we did they didn't own anything from uh, the side of the building where the front gate is over the, to where the commissary is, the parking lot. Gotcha. That over was another lot. Smith Creek Boulevard. That belonged right. to somebody else. Right. And then South Carolina came up with an offer to Dino. Highly publicized. Yes. Come down here. We will give you a facility. Jeff and I went down, and if I remember correctly, it was the old Civic Center. I don't know that I've ever been there or seen it again. And we measured up the inside of the building, and there was a few buildings on the outside. And Martha and Dino at some point showed up, and the film commissioner, who, or maybe even the mayor, I don't know, walked them through the property. And I remember, of course, it was Dino walking out front, and everybody else was behind him. And he said, well, what if I need some more room? And directly next door to this place was a Catholic school. And the film commissioner, whose name I forget, said, well, we'll just give you the school, too. <laughs> and Dino, Dino turned to her and said, well, where will the children go? Wow. I've never forgotten that. That was the first, first words out of his mouth. Of course, he had no intention of going to South Carolina. He used that to parlay his deal with the state to remain in Wilmington. Of North Carolina. Yes. Right. So anyway, we... We, we stayed around in this office until my wife called me and said, you need to come home. What are you doing? I said, well, not, we're not really doing it. You need to come home to Shelby. And I, had, and, and I had been there since July, gone home a time or two, and she had been back and forth a time or two. So I went to Giorgio and I said, Giorgio, look, I'm, I'm getting some pressure from home. I need to go home. You know, and, and when you guys get this you know, this gels a little bit, and I can be of some assistance. Call me, and I'll come back. I went home, and I was home for three days, and, of course, my wife and I are talking about where we're going to move and where will the kids go to school, and, you know. Giorgio phones me up and says, the first words out of it, he doesn't even say hello. He says, where are you? I go, Giorgio, I'm at home. I told you that, you know, I, my wife <laughs> insisted that I come home. He said, you must come back. 
I said, well, are you ready for it? He said, you must come back. I said, Giorgio, I can't come back right now. He says, you are fired. <laughs> Boom, goes Ooh. the phone. So I tell my wife, it's, well, that, you know, easy come, easy go. That's the end of that night. <laughs> Apparently the next day or two days later, he called again and said, Mr. Dino says, says that you can come back when you're ready. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Dino. Mr. Dino. And I don't remember how soon I went back after that, but we, we moved. Uh, the moving van arrived at my house on January 1st or 2nd of 1984. So then you guys got a green light to build some stages. Well, what happened, we had, we had uh, part of my job was to go talk to uh, builders and invite builders in and talk to them about right. costs. And, and I had to meet with the uh, Wilmington Planning Commission, which was very loose, not like it is today. Right. And of course, they wanted a master plan. <laughs> so well, here's what I got right here. It's going to be three bill or four buildings, and we're going to rehab the building inside. And we had talked. We, I think we had settled on. I'm not sure who we had settled on. We talked to Middle Building, Sanco, and one day, the fat man walks in, Nello Filippini. Nello, yeah. And he starts speaking Italian to Giorgio. Done. That's it. He got the Done job. Now. <laughs> and built all the other stages there at the studio. Including a mill shot that you ran for a while. When he hired me, I told him that I'd be happy to uh, build, build his stages and manage that for him, but that I really still wanted to do film. But of course, I couldn't rent any tools because he had the tools. And it, what it was... It was his equipment. Yeah. Of course, initially, it was his house with his films and he found another way to make money off of his films basically because I'm sure that he had a way to, for the studio to take that money and would go into his pocket and it was a way to make money off of his films right 10% off of everything well it was the material was material was 10% he charged 15% on labor it was a pain in the neck people hated it Right. The art departments that I dealt with, they hated it. They thought we were, you know, they accused me of using material from one job to hit their job to support another, you know, all, all of which was not true. But. Right. Well, it was just the deal with uh, the, the corking fee. Anytime you know, any production came from out of town, brought their own gear, they had to pay a certain percentage to Dina. And pretty much all the shows done on the lot at the time, all the equipment came from him. I mean, we had old instruments lighting instruments from Italy that the you know, Mole Richardson, Italia and stuff like that. Kind of cool, kind of neat. I mean, that's history right there, you know. That Big old Dino's. The Dino light, that's actually. Right. Was, his name light. was built in Mexico that's for right. Dune. for him. And, you know, we used those for years. I remember on, when we did Date with an Angel, line stage four with those Dino's up top yep. for the Redwood Forest. And when we turned them on, the tree sap was boiling up in the trees. Ballistic <laughs> Listen, back in the day, you remember the old lightning machines we had for that job? Yeah. It's the first time I've ever seen them. The old arc rods they would take and slice them out of 45 yep. and had like seven sticker flickers because it's seven carbon rods. And you, like a big 
scissor machine in a, in a reflective box. And we had Jock Brandis old 1800 amp generator out in the lot, right? We had cable running through, and it was all figure-aided for the resistance. And that generator, every time you hit those, one of those machines, that generator would bounce all around. Burr. Like, yeah, it's, it's hilarious, but that's the way back in the day it was the lightning strikes. There's no electronics to it. It was just manual stand back. Electronics. <laughs> you know what? We don't know what's going to happen. We're going <laughs> to hit it. <laughs> one of the great things about what happened in Wilmington, and right from the very beginning, when we did Firestarter, of course, Frank Capper Jr., right? right? I, um, the part that George C. Scott played, George C. Scott at Wilmington, come on, think about it. Yes. Was supposed to be Glenn Ford, and Glenn Ford backed up. I mean, these were old timers. And there was a, a um, sketch artist who came in on Firestarter, a guy by the name of Harold Michelson, who worked on his first film in 1959. and. There, there's actually a documentary about Harold Michelson and his wife. His wife ran wow. a, a film library, and Harold Michelson, um, like I say, was this guy, was this guy steeped in the business. Uh, and it was the the people that came to Wilmington through Dino, Ken Adam, yes, Michael these Michael Stringer, these people from. Yes. You know, that have been in the industry that have done all these huge projects that were right there in this little podunk town in Wilmington. Yeah. It's, you know, it was remarkable. And, and, and any of us that were here in the very beginning, we were so lucky. Right. To be, in, to be able to be involved in that because we had the freedom, as you said, to set our own course because yeah. we could create our own bastardized version of how we do things within reason. And yet, there were all these people that were steeped in tradition, and yeah. it was just a wonderful time. It was a good time, no doubt. My first job was working on Marie. I was hired to drive the decorator. Uh, her name was Maria. She was Philippine, and she had worked on Apocalypse Now. Boy, she had some stories to tell. But nonetheless, she didn't last long. And back then, if you're driving a decorator, you're automatically a set dresser, and I worked for Tantar. Yeah. However, Chris Minjez was a cinematographer on Marie, and that year he won the Academy Award really? for The Killing Fields. That? Within two weeks of working, I'm working with Chris Minjez designing light fixtures for him. For the lampshades, we would take the big silk lampshade, cut a hole in the back, double line them with silk, cut a hole in the back. And we did that with with 60 different lampshades. And that's how he would light the set. So he'd mm -hmm. put the lampshade, then you get the big bounce off the back mm -hmm. in double silk coming towards the, the frame. Sounds like, sounds like something Tommy Sullivan came up with to make you do. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. Interesting. Yeah, English, Italian, Spanish, New York, LA. Take the good. Canadian. Canadian. Don't forget, lot, can, yep. don't forget Canadian. Yep. That's where Jock came from. Yep. Yeah. Fergie. Yep. John Ferguson. They'd all worked, I guess, up in Seattle mm -hmm. with. Was it Seattle with uh, when they did Dead Zone? Because a lot of the people, else. a lot of the people that came on Firestarter, were from Seattle. Don Goldman. Remember him, yep. production manager? Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. I Dead Zone was, which mm -hmm. is a job he did prior, just prior to coming here. Of course, he had gone to different different places in England 
when they did rag, I'm going to build a studio here. When he was in Mexico, he kind of said, he said the same thing. Well, he kind of took over Studio Cherubusco in Mexico City. And that's where they shot Dune and Total Recall. I've worked on those stages and Dino's fingerprints are all over them. And also I scouted some stages in Morocco and a Warzazat that were Dino's. Uh, the stages look very familiar to the ones we have here in Wilmington. Did he not go to Arizona or, or New Mexico or something and build something when he left here? Did he not? Uh, Australia. I think Australia, okay, I was yeah. for some reason. Yeah. So he's got a footprint in Rome and Mexico City, Australia, Morocco. Yeah, Rome is big. I actually have his <laughs> brochure book from Cinecita yeah. there. And yeah. And, um, and I think the Morocco, that's where they did those big ones like the Bible and uh, those mm -hmm. big kind of epics he did. Was in Morocco, Warzazat, up there. And I, my understanding when he landed here is really Wrightsville Beach that, that anchored it. A lot of things that I had to do in the very early stages had a lot to do with Martha and Dino, helping them. Of course, I, I built her house out at Wrightsville Beach. Um, but the truth is, Dino and Martha came out of the closet, their romance. Right. came out of the closet here. I think it was because his his original wife had passed away. She was in some won an Oscar for some Fellini films or Right. So he was very much in love with Martha. He used to have jewelers come in with trays of jewels and have her pick something out. Wow. I mean, it was but he asked her, Martha, if I could do anything for you. What would you like me to do for you? She said, I would love to run a studio. Boom. Wow. As far as I know, that's why they're here. Wow. You know, Martha and I, we stayed friends a long time, and I'd always, we'd kind of keep in touch. Finally, after Dino passed away, I'm working in L.A. It's been about a year since he passed away, and I called her up and said, Martha, look, I, you know, I just, I got to pay my respects. You and Dino changed my life. They had, still had the bungalow at Universal Studio at the time. And she says, yeah, come on by. And, then, and by the way, park in Dino's spot. He's not using it. <laughs> so you broke ground on 23rd Street. Well, we built, we built stage two and three. And then stage one. Right. And then the camera building for Joe Dunton. Right. And that was it to start. Sometime later, Raffaella and David Lynch showed up with Dino after they had finished Dune in Mexico. And Raffaella said, but daddy, you need more room. And then Dino turned to, it wasn't to me, I don't know who he turned to, and said, we want to buy that over there, which was the other property that went over to Smith Creek Boulevard. With that building on it, I think, too. There was no building. There was no building, so the commissary was built. Nothing. Nothing there. Do you guys remember the commissary, those first days when we would go drink in there after work? Mm -hmm. <laughs> or during lunch. Or sure. during lunch. <laughs> the British camera guys. <laughs> that bar, at night, it was like the Star Wars bar. <laughs> and there are literally guys that worked on Star Wars in the bar. Crazy evenings. 
there. You know, you work all day and then go back and give your money back to Dino at night. That's right. After a while, once the commissary was built, he closed up his DDL food show in New York City and moved all of that product down there, all them cakes and Italian yeah. recipes before anybody else had gourmet shops. He right. had one. He had one in Wilmington. Yeah, brought it to Wilmington. Did you work on the Abyss? I didn't. We were doing Black Rainbow. We were talking about that earlier. We were doing Black Rainbow in Charlotte. I think. Yes. I did part of that. Yeah. I had to leave when they, when Bob Warner hired me. Remember Bob Warner? Good guy. I got a funny story about Bob Warner. <laughs> <laughs> Bob Testerman was the painter. Remember Bobby? God love him. Uh, true talent. Yes. True talent. And we we had a job. We worked in in Hamlet. Yep. At the Terminal Hotel. Yep. And that was exactly the right name for that play. Remember yep. Wojtek yep. was the designer? Yep. And Bobby went in and had to repaint the whole place. And, of course, living there were all these derelicts and yeah. winos. Yeah. Well, Bobby hired these guys to help paint and paid them cash out of his own pocket. Right? So the show's over. I'm working on Everybody Wins, and I get a call from Bob Warner. And he says, what about this guy? Tell me about this guy, Bob Testerman. He came in to me wanting money uh, to, to, to reimburse for all the people he paid there to paint. I said, yeah. I said, he, uh, I'm sure he did it. I don't know right. that I was aware of it at yeah. that point, but I'm sure he did, because that's exactly the kind of thing that Bobby would do, because they were his kind of people. Yeah. <laughs> right? And of course, Bob Warren was just beside himself. He, he didn't know what to do. He said, I can't pay him. I said, well, you know, he, he did pay him to get the job done. Yeah, such a great And he's not dishonest. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. Well, I was just going to say, that was Jerry Fisher shot that, and Jerry Fisher shot the extras. We did right. it as well. But yeah, old English DP, great, been around forever. It was yep. in, in the Bridge Over the River Choir. It's a camera system. Yeah. But yeah, but old English DP, Jerry Fisher, great. Yep. Great yeah. man. I remember we own, I think it was Date with an Angel or something, we handed Bobby Testerman an unfinished dresser, unfinished wood, a little three-door dresser. We need pink marble, you know, in three hours. Three hours later, it was not only beautiful pink marble, it was dry to the touch. Mm. <laughs> now, that's lacquer for you, <laughs> I'm afraid. <laughs> he came here on Cat's Eye. Ward Welton was the painter, was the head painter. And... We needed to grain. We made all this oversized furniture for this creature. Right. And we needed somebody to grain it. He says, I got just the guy. And he brought Bobby in. And of course, we never brought Ward back, but we brought Bobby back and he ended up living here. I got a million stories about Bobby. Mm. We'd go on location. Uh, the one time we were, we were in Mississippi. Right. Bobby drives in. A little later on, we're at the hotel. And he has all these papers on one of the beds. And I go, Bobby, what's all that? He says, well, it's my taxes. I said, Bobby, the taxes were due months ago. He says, I always turn them in a year late. I go, well, why would you do that? You always get money back. He says, because eh, when I die, I'll be one up on them. <laughs> <laughs> from I learned from him, the best way to age things is just tie it to the back of the five ton. Drive it around. <laughs> And drag it to the set. I gave him a bunch of saddles or something to age one time, and the next thing you know, he's 
just tying him to the back of his Jeep or what are you driving? Like he had a Jeep. Yeah, he yeah, drove he a Jeep. Jeep. He had a red Jeep. And he's driving around the lot with him. <laughs> we had him. We, he, had to age, he had to age a car. And he, he was driving the car into the cement uh, loading ramp that we built for the steering. Come crashing into the corner. <laughs> he had to do it. Well, I made a lot of money on that back lot, turning the block from you know, New York to New Orleans, back to New York. Back to New Orleans. That was a big draw for Wilmington. Yeah. yeah. Was that back lot? A lot of people came. And that brought the work out of New York. Yeah. Cause and at the time, too, stage four had the world's largest blue screen. Yes. <laughs> that was, world's largest that backlit was blue screen. Stage four was one of the big selling factors. Yep. yep. Uh, Dino banked on the blue screen technology. When I decided I was going to, this is it, I'm going to be in the business. I was working on Marie, and we went, had gone to Nashville, worked at the, Capitol and the state buildings in Nashville came back and they were building those interiors here on stage, on stage three. Stage four wasn't there yet. Mm-hmm. While this is all going on, that backlight has been going up, right? And it was, I remember it was a November evening and one electrician's on stage three with me said, come on, John, we got to go down. We're going to, they're going to shoot their big scene. And so we put down our tools and we walked down, you know, no stage for anything, walked down and um, and there's that kind of beautiful winter sunset where the trees are silhouetted and it's sort of this pink sky and then from the back lot is this kind of pink glow. The trucks around the lot are empty. There's no one to be found. It's like crickets. And walking through there and within five steps, I stepped from basically the swamp of North Carolina into Chinese New Year's Eve <laughs> dragon procession with Michael Cimino on the bullhorn. Boom, 1,500 pounds of fireworks and 500 neon signs, 800 Chinese extras. That's it, I'm in, I'm staying. <laughs> we just walked right in, we're right in the middle of the scene. You know, We're part of the crowd and we go back and go to work and be about an hour and a half reset and we go down and do it again and go down and do it again we saw him like do five takes of that that was a big that was that was a big set it was a big deal i mean the uh the uh, special effects coordinator jeff jarvis gave me a case of of firecrackers i don't know inch and a half or two inch firecrackers but there were rolls yeah, this those big. big rolls yes <laughs> yeah yeah yeah. i had the most fun with that. In the double twist. Oh, yeah, and yeah. they would just go off and off and nonstop. Wouldn't go, they would go off for, you know, a minute or two. It was amazing. Yeah. Just yeah. amazing. Okay, so after you finished Firestarter, you started building the studio proper. And you started the production of Cat's Eye, which uh, brought with it a lot of miniature work. On Cat's Eye, Dino brought this guy up, Emilio. I don't remember his last name. He's Spanish, wasn't he? Yeah, he was Spanish. I want to say Ruiz, but I could be wrong. But, you know, he he did all these foreground miniatures yeah. about this guy walking on the, uh, along the uh, the ledge of a, of, uh, of a building. It was amazing. It's way up in the air. And you go up there and look, go up the scaffolding and look through it where he's shooting. Yeah. And it's just, you know, all that stuff's gone. Yep. Nobody yeah. does that anymore. Yeah. I remember on The Exorcist, we built a, we built a forced perspective hallway on scaffolding that we would move from one end of the 
of a, the, of the set yeah. all the way around to the other side. So when you opened the doors, it looked like there was a whole other long hallway. Right. Yeah, it's, and we did a Raffaello movie actually up in Indiana, Prancer, and it was the same way with the miniatures, you know, like all the, the reindeer flying over, yeah. whatever, and it was, it was really neat, really cool. That's just the way, it's, that's just what we did. It. It's gone. That, yeah, know. You know, that yeah. part of the industry is gone, and to have been, to have been, to be able to be a part of that and see all that happening is, is another fortunate yeah. thing. I think yeah. the last, the last big push here was the crow. There's quite a bit of miniature work on the crow. Oh, the crow, yeah. And that was Gus's, and that, Gus's job. Yeah, and uh, Golden Years, where we built a foreground model and out took it to the Dupont plant and hung it, hung it in front of that plant to do an extension. The foreground extension. Gus also worked on Little Monsters that they did at Tileston School, which is now St. Mary's. And I think the last the one that Gus did for us, maybe not, it was prior to The Crow when we did Betsy's Wedding. He built a miniature of the house, uh, lined it up in perspective to the framed house that we had made, three or four story house. And the guy walked out the front door through Gus's model. It was just perfect. And the designer, whose name escapes me now, was shocked that there was somebody in Wilmington that right. understood lenses and could could do all that. Do the math, yes. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, that was that was that was impressive stuff. Computer graphics, took it over. It's all gone. CG, mm -hmm. took it gone. But if the actors and the writers are worried about AI, well, we got burned years ago. <laughs> right? Very good point, Jeff Slaughter. Really? Very good point. Really? Well guys, thank you very much for joining us on Rat You're Beer. Welcome. It's good. Enjoyed it. <laughs> Uh, original members of the tribe. The tribe. That's a good line. I like <laughs> oh, that, John. No <laughs> and of all the influences that we've had here in Wilmington, Shelby and Earl Owensby certainly play a very prominent role. Yep. And also, I really appreciate it. And um, let's do it again sometime. Yeah, thanks Very for having us, John. John. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Right. Thank you. Yep. Well, people, I have to say, it's a long, long way from the Carolina hills to Hollywood. So a story I will tell about a poor boy who did well. He was chasing down a dream like a poor boy should. He's gonna be a star on the movie screen. Gonna be a face everybody's seen. Going all the way, no in between. When a country boy is chasing down a dream When a country boy is chasing down a dream He made a lot of money With nothing but sweat and brains Then he bought a movie camera and away we go As the money kept rolling in He bought movie lights and film Where a pasture used to be there's a studio Where did you find that song? Who is that? Uh, it's you know it's a band called Mama Said um, from Shelby I'm sure it's recorded up at Gardner Webb College isn't that amazing you know I don't know about you but this country boy is still chasing down his dream <laughs> no I, I that's that's what I really think I enjoy about that song is you know there's a lot of truth in there uh, especially about being filmmaker you know and just how the drive just doesn't die so that's an introduction to the tribe. Jeff Slaughter and Rusty Edmondson. I, I think that was a, just a great interview on so many levels. Now, we got the next episode already coming up, and that is... Episode three, where we go 
way behind the scenes on Blue Velvet. Oh, David Lynch. David Lynch, and we uh, get some good storytelling done by John Bankson, who was Dennis Hopper's driver, and Vernon Harrell, prop man, who had a front row seat on that production. Who actually is also my cousin. You know, Wilmington's just one big family. Yes, it is. Yes. All right, rapbeer.com, where more stories are being told about storytelling. Thanks, everybody, for listening today. And remember, be kind. I'm going to be a face everybody's seen going all the way.